Good afternoon. You are listening to Action Line on KINY, and joining me today is the Commissioner for the Department of Natural Resources, John Boyle. Do I have that correct? Yeah. Hi, Jordan. It's great to be on. It's great to have you. Now, I understand that you want to talk to me about HB 50 and HB 49, the carbon offset program. So let's start with that one. Sure. Well, so what we're talking about are, are two separate bills. HB 50 really involves around carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And I think for simplicity's sake, that's really us creating a framework to enable folks to store CO2 underground in reservoirs that the state owns. HB 49 deals with carbon offsets, which is primarily, you know, utilizing our, our forests and, and other state lands for carbon offset opportunities. Okay. So let's, let's talk more on the carbon offset opportunities. So I was looking through the actual bill itself a little bit ago, and I understand that these, this would be a new sort of program to get those carbon offsets. Is that correct? That's correct, at least for the state. So as many people may be aware, you know, in the 2015-2016 timeframe, a number of Alaska Native corporations, including Sea Alaska, Atma, Chugach, Hunatotum, and others, uh, engaged in utilizing their private Native corporation land in carbon offset projects. And that was primarily done in the, in the regulated market. Uh, through a program administered by the California Air Resources Board. And in effect, it's, you know, setting aside lands that, that could otherwise be utilized for timber harvesting or, you know, other uses and, and allowing, you know, those forests to, to grow and to continue to sequester carbon. And in exchange, you know, a, a company or a developer would, would receive, you know, carbon credits in return. What the, what the state is looking for here, HB 49, is a little, little, little different, a little more nuanced. Really what, what we're looking for is to have a suite of kind of forest management tools at our disposal that would enable the state to potentially put up state lands that are forested for carbon offset purposes. But I think instead of thinking about it as the state's you know, setting aside land to be locked up or otherwise not utilized, it, it actually really incentivizes the state to manage its forests in a more proactive way. So just as an example, folks that have traveled through south-central Alaska, whether that be the, you know, Anchorage Bowl, the Susitna Valley, or, or down on the Kenai, have probably seen, you know, millions of acres of trees that have succumbed to the spruce bark beetle. You know, it's really had a, a tremendous impact on our, our spruce forests in those regions. So if a company was interested in, you know, leasing forested land in that area and, you know, harvesting that, that dead timber and, and going in and, you know, more aggressively replanting trees and then start to manage those forests to really improve their ability to absorb carbon. So, you know, might, might involve tree thinning to allow trees to grow bigger and not be sort of strangled, for lack of a better term, from, you know, brush and grasses and, and other things that can kind of inhibit growth and really manage those forests in a way that would enable the, the trees to grow, you know, bigger, healthier, and ultimately absorb more carbon. And so, you know, that would be the kind of project, for instance, that somebody could then 
take to the voluntary market and say, look, because of the money that we're spending, the investment that we've made, you know, this forest is going to be able to absorb more carbon. And as a result, you know, we are entitled to receive some carbon credits that, you know, have a monetary value ascribed to that. Okay. And then and break down the carbon credits a bit more for me as someone that's not familiar with them too much. So a, a carbon credit is basically, in, you know, it's an instrument that represents additional, you know, one ton of CO2 that has been taken out of the atmosphere or, or maybe in, in another way it could be the representation of a, a ton of carbon that is in addition to kind of what the baseline is that's being absorbed in a given area of forest, right? So just using that, that example that, that I use, let's say you have 50 acres of forested land, and half of that land is, is comprised of trees that are, are dead or dying. And so that 50 acres is going to have a certain baseline of, of a carbon that it's absorbing out of the atmosphere every year from, from that portion of that 50 acres that has, you know, live, healthy trees. So if a, a developer goes through that 50 acres and clears out the dead trees and then goes in and replants new trees and is managing that forest so that, you know, the next year that forest is absorbing, let's just say, 20 tons of additional CO2 per year, then that developer can, can go to a, a registry and say, look, because of the money that I've spent in my management practices, you know, my 50 acres of forested land is now absorbing more carbon than it normally would if I had just kind of left things in a state of nature. And so that registry then would go and, and do some surveying work, would verify that because of, you know, what you've done or the investment that you've made actually is going to help that forest absorb more carbon. And there's a value to that. And where the value comes from is that, you know, there are myriad companies, right? And we've, we've heard a lot of their names. Could be airline companies that we travel on, could be, you know, major um, tech companies that we utilize their services, could be oil and gas companies, polluters, manufacturers, so on and so forth. And all of these companies, you know, a number of these companies, I should say, have pressure from shareholder groups, from their board of directors, that they may need to achieve certain environmental benchmarks, you know, net zero in their operations, or at least reduce the amount of, of carbon intensity of their operations. And so there, are only, there, there may be just a certain amount of reduction that they can actually make in their core businesses. And so a number of those companies or entities are then looking for other areas to where people can achieve some carbon savings that, of course, enable them to, to continue to remain in business, but yet at the same time recognize that, you know, that, that they need to do more to try to lower their carbon footprint. And so a company like that then may say, hey, person in Alaska that's managing this 50 acres that has now invested it, invested money and, and done work to actually enable that 50 acres to absorb more carbon, I, I want to buy those credits, those additional credits, uh, to offset the amount of emissions that my company has. And that's, in, in a nutshell, and, and maybe not the most eloquent explanation of sort of how that market works. 
Okay. So what it kind of sounds like to me is by having those carbon credits, it offsets what your carbon output is. Is that correct? Like to shorten it down? Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. So, if, you know, if you're, a, you know, you're a power plant and, and you're burning, you know, uh, hydrocarbon in order to generate electricity, you may have very limited options for what you can do to operate that power plant and try to lower your carbon footprint. And so instead of mothballing your power plant or instead of, you know, spending a bunch of money to generate a different kind of power that may not be carbon intensive, you may say, I'm going to use that money that I would otherwise, that I really can't utilize to lower the emissions of my core business. And instead, I'm going to send that out to the, you know, broader carbon market. And if there's somebody in Alaska that's interested in, you know, managing forests to increase their carbon, um, you know, utilization rate so that they're actually pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere, I'm going to send my money there and recognize that that investment is going to lower carbon emissions overall. And that's that's kind of how I strike this balancing act between continuing on in my core business, but yet at the same time trying to push for a, a lower carbon future. Gotcha. Okay. So I think another good way to sort of summarize that was that would be that by taking that extra money and putting it towards, you know, resource conservation, it helps keep the like you were saying, keeps everything kind of stable going into the future. That's right. Okay. That's what I was gathering from it, but it's nice to have that sort of full explanation and then being able to sort of bring it back down. So then when you're, when you're, you know, when you're regular person out in the public hears that, then they can be like, okay, well then that makes more sense now when I hear it talked about in the legislature. Yep. Definitely sounds good. Well, we're going to be taking a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to talk more about the sequestering of that carbon. Welcome back to Action Line. I am your host, Jordan Lewis. At least I hope I still am. Joining me still is the... Sorry, I am stumbling right now. (laughs) I'm only human. He's joining me right now is Commissioner John Boyle from the Department of Natural Resources. Now, I want to talk to you about the sort of the carbon sequestering. And so I understand that's with both the forest and then I was reading it a bit earlier. And that also applies to the marine environment as well. So talk to me more about that. Yes, yeah, so there are a lot of interesting opportunities that exist in the world of mariculture for carbon sequestration. And, and primarily that, that comes through growing kelp. It is, a number of people know kelp can, can grow extremely quickly. And Alaska has 30,000 miles of coastline that, that fall within the state's purview and ownership. And so the, the theory behind kelp is that, you know, folks that want to go out and grow plots of kelp that grow quickly, that absorb a lot of carbon, you know, those are kinds of projects that could also qualify for carbon credits, because obviously it's, it's not free to go out and plant kelp and, and to, you know, maintain, you know, farms or operations of that size. And so people that want to make that investment obviously need to recognize some kind of return. And so that's another area of where, you know, large scale kelp farms that, uh, are geared towards growing the kind of kelp that really have a, you know, fast growth rate, really absorb a lot of carbon. There's a lot of opportunities there as well for carbon offset um, opportunities. Gotcha. And then I'm not sure if you'd have this data offhand, but what is, uh, do you know what the largest source of for carbon sequestering, for carbon sequestering is for the state? Or would that be that marine environment or is that mostly our forests? 
I think primarily at this point, our, our forested lands would, would provide us the best opportunity. I, I think a lot of the mariculture industry, particularly with you know growing kelp for the purpose of carbon sequestration, is still somewhat in its infancy, whereas on, on the forest side, we've had a lot of Alaska Native corporations that have already undertaken that effort, and the state is very confident in its ability to be able to monetize you know, state forested land in a, in a similar way. And so I, I think our forested lands at this point in time represent the best opportunity. But I think, you know, subsequently down the road, there may be other opportunities, including the underground storage component that actually might provide more overall, you know, kind of carbon storage opportunities versus some of these other areas that we've already talked about. Gotcha. And that would be, would that be the soil sequestering or is that a different one? Well, so, you know, it's interesting because I, I, I think it, it merits being pointed out that the, the whole world of carbon credits and, you know, what we can do to sequester carbon takes myriad forms. And there are a lot of really interesting opportunities using biochar, for instance, mixed into soil. You can improve the quality of agricultural land while at the same time sequester carbon longer than you would, you know, utilizing other sort of farming practices. So it, it really what the state is looking to do in, in both pieces of legislation that's introduced is create the broad regulatory framework we can then utilize to go out and engage with potential developers and the market and see what kind of, you know, carbon offset project really makes sense. But, but in the specific case of, of the legislation that we're looking at, when, I, when I'm talking about storing carbon underground, what I really mean is injecting carbon into underground reservoirs. Okay. Then I guess another big question that would kind of lead me to is, so why are we looking at that kind of carbon management now? Like, I understand maybe we might have looked at that a bit in the past, but it sounds like we're talking about a lot more about that now as opposed to we were before. There's a few you know, key drivers, I would say, for that. One is the, the voluntary market for carbon credits. And, and by voluntary, I mean a market where, you know, kind of buyers and sellers willingly enter into these contractual relationships versus a regulated market, for instance, where you might have a sovereign, whether that's a state government or a foreign government saying, we're going to impose a carbon tax on emissions or we're going to impose some kind of cap and trade or a cap, you know, where you're going to have a limit to the amount of emissions that you're able to emit into the atmosphere every year. And if you want to go beyond that, then you have to, you know, go and, and get credits or, or, you know, make, make some kind of financial arrangement so that you can, you know, bring your business into compliance with what our, our limit is. So in the voluntary market, where you have buyers and sellers kind of willingly enter, entering into these agreements, that market has seen rapid growth, and we're, we're, all trends show that that market is going to continue to grow in the neighborhoods of 10 to potentially over $100 billion here over the next you know, 20, 30 to 50 years. So one, there's an incredible opportunity in that space. Two, a lot of that money is being driven by federal subsidy. So the Internal Revenue Service has a 45Q tax provision that was recently increased with the federal government's latest infrastructure bill. And what that does is that it gives companies a very strong tax incentive to engage in carbon offset projects, because that may then entitle those business 
to pretty substantial tax credit that they can cash or that they can deduct against their current tax liabilities that really helps incentivize, you know, these carbon offset markets. And so the state recognizes that there are a lot of incentives out there right now to encourage companies to undertake these activities. Two, there's, you know, a burgeoning market for carbon credits and that, you know, all indications are that that market is just going to continue to grow. And so the state really wants to be as proactive as it can be to be ready to engage and and be involved in that space and monetize state resources so that we can take advantage of some of these trends. Gotcha. Speaking of sort of, you know, having those, you being able to utilize those resources, what are some of the near-term opportunities for the state going down this route? So near-term opportunities for the state, of course, involve, you know, again, utilizing our, our, our state forested lands for carbon offset projects. So that could mean, you know, putting up tracts of forested land for long-term contracts for a developer that wants to come in and manage those forests for carbon offset purposes. Or it could mean the state actually wants to take the lead itself and use its own kind of in-house expertise to manage certain tracts of forested land more intensively so that the state could realize some direct benefits from carbon credits. On the underground front, which we, which we really haven't touched on yet, there's a lot of opportunities there in terms of the state has an incredible array of underground geologic formations where CO2 can be safely and efficiently stored. So Cook Inlet, for instance, you know, the, the Cook Inlet is a depleted, generally depleted oil and gas basin. Of course, we're still producing some oil and some gas from there. But there, there's a lot of underground reservoir space that had once contained, you know, oil and natural gas deposits that are now empty. And we estimate that in the Cook Inlet alone, there's over 50 gigatons of capacity for stored carbon. And to put that into context, 50 gigatons is more carbon than the entire country of Japan will emit in 50, in a 50 year period of time. And so we may get to a point in the future, particularly where Asian countries that have signed on to the Paris Accord or that have, you know, very stringent kind of benchmarks or targets for, you know, overall wide emissions levels, where they may look to Alaska as a place to where they could actually ship CO2, you know, similar how do we ship LNG or hydrogen or ammonia, you know, other products of that nature, where they'd actually want to ship carbon to the United States, to Alaska, and sequester it in our underground reservoirs where we have the geology and the capacity to store a lot of carbon. And so, you know, that's one area where there could be a lot of opportunity. Other opportunities in the state could be, you know, a a coal-fired power plant that wants to take CO2 out of its emission stack and inject that into the ground so that they can lower the carbon intensity then of their, you know, overall power operations. It could be an oil and gas company that wants to lower its overall emissions that strips CO2 out of the natural gas that it produces and inject that and store that under the ground to to lower the overall emissions impact of their oil and gas activities. So there, there are myriad opportunities that we think will be available to the state. And if we ever get to the point, for instance, where we have a major gas line project like AKLNG, that would require a tremendous amount of storage capacity for the CO2 that's 
contained within natural gas deposits on the North Slope, that could be another huge opportunity for the state to capitalize on sequestering that carbon underground and and realizing some some benefits through that process. Gotcha. Okay. Well, Commissioner, I'd like to thank you for you know taking the time to talk with me about it. It sounds like there's a lot going on in that front, and it'll be interesting to see how it continues to develop, especially with the two bills that are in the legislature right now. Yeah, anytime. We're, we're happy to happy to share our story. All righty. That was Commissioner John Boyle from the Department of Natural Resources. This has been Action Line on KINY.